Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live had her first novel published when she was 38 after going through several rejections. It was called The Bluest Eye. Up until that point, she'd worked uh, as a teenager uh, cleaning houses. It was the only job a teenager of her color could get in her town in Ohio growing up. She later moved east to school, attended Howard University, worked as an editor at uh, Random House, and brought a number of great books into the world and to fruition, and also along the way, put together a collection on the history of slavery called The Black Book. And during the time of researching this, came across the story of a runaway slave who, on recapture, decided to kill her daughter rather than to allow her to go into the world of slavery as she had. And that became one of the ideas behind Beloved. Her other novels include uh, Song of Solomon, Jazz, Tar Baby, and her new one called A Mercy. Along the way, she's won many prizes, including in 1993, the Nobel Prize for Literature. Please welcome Toni Morrison to West Coast Live. young you were when you wrote that book? It was uh, The Bluest Eye. That, uh, that must have been a thrilling moment when somebody decided to accept your novel for publication. It was. It took a long time. I think there were 12 uh, rejections I had. Most were just postcards saying, we're not interested, thank you very much. And a couple were real letters uh, trying to explain why they didn't want the book. And the one I remember best was a very earnest effort to describe to me what was necessary for acceptance. And she said, your story has some merit, but it has no beginning, it has no middle, and it has no end. (laughs) It was kind of a circle. That's right. (laughs) This was a a story of 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 a girl who could not see her own beauty and wanted blue eyes like the dolls of, uh, of, uh, of the Dick and Jane world. And John, the late great critic John Leonard, when he wrote a review of it, said that, that not only was it beautifully written, it had poetry, but it also had history, it had sociology, it had pain, it had music, it is sad, it overwhelms. It was also about the sort of the commercialization of what was important and how our children are told lies. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, self-loathing as almost a product. Um, and I thought, you know, this business is something that, say, African-Americans in particular, but lots of ethnic groups suffer the construction of a way of life that is soul-destroying. It really can hurt Uh, you know, the tendency is to say, well, you know, go on with it, get over it. But when you're vulnerable and female and young and black, and what happened for me was seeing 
young black girls treated in literature like jokes or um, caricatures or instances where someone else could feel pity. But they were never central to the narrative. They never held the book together. And so I decided that that was a silence and an absence that was intolerable. As an, as an editor, you must have seen, had, had you seen books by other black writers come through that you would then try to get forward and bring about and have them published? Later on, I did. I, some, um, like, um, I missed. But I didn't go to agents because they never had the kinds of books I was interested in. So I went outside that area. And then when I was, I mean, unless there were people like Angela Davis or Muhammad Ali who were obviously well-known, but to get young, unpublished writers who were African-American was, was what I was looking for. So, and I found many, you know, uh, Gail Jones and Tony K. Bambara and um, many, uh, Leon Forrest. It was hard because they kept telling me that there was no real market for that book. And I thought, well, maybe we'll make a market for them. And so that's when I put together the black book because I thought, let's make something good enough so that people who may or may not be close readers can enjoy. And that's when that sort of scrapbook idea came to me. Well, enjoy is kind of a, not the total word you want to use for this experience. I mean, of reading about black history in America and of slavery. Well, I have to say, I had a letter from a prisoner after the black book was published and somehow he had a copy. He wrote me a letter and he said, I would like two more copies of the black book. I want one to give to a friend. I want the other one to throw up against the wall. And I want to keep this one close to my heart. <laughs> Is it, uh, and in the course of researching that book, you came across the story that became part of the kernel of, of, of uh, Beloved. Oh, yes. I read the story about Margaret Garner in a newspaper. And uh, what was interesting in that newspaper article was the journalist, the person who was writing the story, um, he described the incident, and it was appalling and horrible. But he seemed to be so surprised and stunned that she wasn't um, drooling or crazed or, you know, she was very calm and she said she'd do it again and he could not believe that someone could remain that sort of cool and sane after having done that and he also quoted her mother-in-law as saying I neither helped her nor hindered her and that was the you don't know what to do with that you know, you understand it but it's you know, um impossible to really approach, and it was that quality. So I never went any further at that point to find out about her and about that incident, except, you know, the obvious abolitionists got all in it, and it was a, you know, cause celebre. And then I could invent her life. That's what I wanted to do for her. And inventing that, I mean, you had to go into the interior world of, of, of slaves and, and, the book is filled, uh, Beloved, is filled with so many painful 
distressing episodes of how human beings were treated. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of wonder as a writer, how did you, how did you pull back from that at either the end of the day or the end of the month? Uh, because to inhabit that space must have taken some kind of a toll. Yeah, I was, I had to be as courageous as I could. There were some scenes that were very difficult to write because I felt in order to do it, I had to imagine it profoundly. So if she cuts the throat of a child, I had to go and try to feel how would it feel to cut the throat of my child, not hers, <laughs> but mine. What does that take? And why would I do it? And under what circumstances could I rationalize it? And those were questions I couldn't really answer, which is why I felt that the only person who could answer or could judge would be <laughs> the dead child. But I have to say that um, make, I want to make myself clear here. Slavery is not good for you. <laughs> However, it is always astonishing to me how under those hundreds of years of duress, there was such creative energy and not just resistance, but a kind of internal agency. You know, you heard it earlier today with, you know, those musicians and those... That was a marvel. It was not a surrender. Uh, it was a manipulation. It was taking hold in spite of the fact that you were separated from your children, separated from family, etc. So when writing, you were saying, how do you pull back? I kept thinking, I don't have to live it. I just have to imagine it. <laughs> so get over yourself and go write the book. <laughs> you know, the, you know when the Paul D., you know, trembling, trying to control his tremble, there was so much sense of emotional repression of trying to move on from the past, yet the past, you know, circles around. And I was, I was thinking about the idea that uh, in in a mercy there are these unintended consequences of a merciful action, and yet, uh, in in many ways, an unintended consequence of that woman slaying her daughter was that we have a very profound telling of what slavery was like, mm -hmm. channeled in a way and imagined by you. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to be willing to look at it really cold and not angry, not sad. You have to be intelligent about it. It's, an, it's a real intellectual project. Uh, my emotions are of no use in the writing. Um, and that's just a waste of energy and, in, and, and smarts, even. Uh, it'll sink you. Uh, but if you're, if you're clear and you're eager and you take it seriously to bear witness, that's my job, is to just bear witness and to try to say exactly how A or B or C probably felt and what they saw and what their reasons were, and then leave the judgment elsewhere uh, to the reader 
uh, to the one who absorbs it. My job is to make the language so alive and so um, beautiful, honestly, that the reader and myself can bear it. The, uh, the playwright August Wilson was once giving a talk, I think you were in the audience, and he ended what he was saying by quoting the opening sentence of the autumn section of The Bluest Eye, saying, Nuns go by as quiet as lust, and drunken men in sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. <laughs> That's nice, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, where, where'd that image come, come from? from? It came from my little street in Lorain, Ohio, at the end of one of the many streets we lived on. We moved a lot back in the 30s. Um, there was a Greek hotel down there, and it was old, and there were a lot of drunks in there, and we were told never, don't hang out there. And there also there were lots of Catholic churches in town, and there were always these pairs of nuns that went by. You could never hear their footsteps. They were always like this. They were always hooded, and they were always deeply, deeply respected. And there was something about that restraint and cloak, you know, the clothes and the, those deep hymns they used to have, and those fantastic shoes, those nun shoes. Were, <laughs> <laughs> meant to last. <laughs> and there was something um, quiet, but underneath, the, they were hiding something, uh, which I called lust at the time, because it, it, it reminded me of that. You know, I have to tell you this story. He's not here to defend himself, so. <laughs> but, I, but he told me this, August Wilson. When I first met him, he said... Um, he was living in Pittsburgh, I think, and he went, He had very little money, and he was a chain smoker, and he went downstairs to get a cup of coffee, and he had a dollar and uh, a pack of cigarettes, and he went into this little diner he frequented, and the cup of coffee was a quarter, and that there was a box or a barrel right outside, and it had books in it for 75 cents with no covers. So he took one, and he went into the diner, he had his coffee, he smoked a and it was the bluest eye. And he said, I read that book through. He said, and it released something in me. And I knew that, I mean, he wasn't a novel writer, but there was something that connected, you know, and he felt the way I have felt early on when you read certain writers that kind of open a door for you. You know, for me it was certain... Uh, writers, novelists from Africa, when they sort of opened up a door, you stepped through. So that's my August Wilson self-gratifying story. Yeah. <laughs> 75 cents. So, you, so, so the, one of the lessons is to frequent the remaindered book bins. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> There's, speak, you, just, you just mentioned a, something, and I, wanted, I have the book over here. Um, what did I do? Here it is. You wrote a foreword to a novel called The Radiance of the King oh, yes. by Kamara Lai, Lai yeah. uh, an African writer. Yes. And you were very interested in this book because it was an African novel unlike, say, Conrad or Hemingway, told from the outsider's point of view, but told from an insider's point of view who'd ended up being in exile in Paris. Mm -hmm. 
But this is the first time I read from an African's point of view, the entrance of a European into Africa with nothing. Usually they come with an army or a mission or a gun or <laughs> something. And Clarence comes in, he's nobody, he's nothing, he has no friends, he's lost them all. He ends up there on the coast and he says he would like a job as a counselor to the king. <laughs> And the Africans say, who are you? <laughs> and it was that reimagining of the penetration that attracted me. And also when I read the uh, reviews, mostly French reviews, about how wonderful this book was, they kept talking about, as most people do, as Conrad does, and even Hemingway, darkest Africa, darkest Africa. And I said, what is this darkness? And so when I was reading the book, it's what you imagine. It was full of sunlight. And it was full of greens and reds, and the sand was golden. What's the dark? All right, maybe perhaps it's foreign or unknown. But I always was, um, you know, annoyed with Isaac Dennison and those people who were always, <laughs> you know, they sort of own the discourse about Africa. And this was an occasion when it was the opposite. Your, your new novel, A Mercy, is is uh, is set in the in the latter part of the of the seventeenth century. Beloved, for instance, was set from about eighteen fifty five to eighteen seventy three or so. This is a very different time. Uh, it's a much more rugged, undeveloped landscape. There are uh, different sort of nationalities and religions represented in North America, and there are people of all kinds who are forced their lives stolen to steal from them their work. Uh, that slavery was not just in this country something that was forced upon the newcomers from Africa. Mm, no, slavery was around for centuries everywhere. And they just called it something else. Peons, serfs, peasants, what have you. Um, certainly not citizens, they were not that and they had no rights. And so this country was full of immigrants forced to come here. You know, if you were a felon and uh, you had some choices, you could go to jail or you could get on a boat and go to America. Um, and so many of them did, chose to leave the country. Some of them were running from things and I just wanted to know what were they running from? What was so terrible about what they were? Now, mind you, I'm interested in this with another group of what I would call silence to people because the history talks about the clerics, the religious people, <clears throat> the merchants, and um, the lawyers, and the sort of people who are working for the Enrons of the day, coming to find resources and take them back. And that's pretty well documented. And occasionally there's some other people, but there were hordes of people who just don't exist in um, the national narrative, um, and certainly not fictionalized. You know, if you, unless you think James Fenimore Cooper is about that. Or Hawthorne, of course, wrote about the religious institutions, but what about those people outside of it? Now that's indentured servants, and that's African slaves, that's Portuguese people, British people, French people, people who came here looking for something or running for something. 
and finding themselves in an extraordinary place that was beautiful and dangerous. And they had to kind of like make it without any support system. And that was what was attractive to me about looking beyond the time when um, the association or the marriage of slavery and race before that. You know, if you look at the ads, and some of them are in the book or versions of them, um, people were selling and renting everybody. Um, one of them I remember was a um, Dutch woman for sale with two children or wanted a boy, black or white, to who knows how to handle, you know. So there were just, everybody was up for sale or rent. And um, it was, you'll excuse the expression, diverse. <laughs> Something we're trying to still achieve, I, right. I think. Right. One of uh, the, the characters include uh, Jacob, a, a, a Dutchman who runs a farm, later becomes a trader uh, in order to make money. Uh, a, a woman who comes, uh, Rebecca from England, who in a way is sold by her parents mm -hmm. to him in exchange for a, a dowry. And though they have an essentially happy marriage, it's hard work. And then um, there's Lena, uh, a Native American, her tribe is devastated by uh, a pox, and she's a survivor, and a guide for the newcomers. And then you have Florence, who is a woman, a young girl, surrendered by her mother early on in, in the book. And then there's Sorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, beautiful names. I thought they were beautiful. My editor was unimpressed. But <laughs> He keeps telling me, what is he, what's with you and these names? <laughs> and I tell him, well, what are you talking about? Increase Mather? You think that's, <laughs> people name themselves all sorts of things. I mean, even the English architect, Capability Brown. That's right. <laughs> so I said, don't tell me I'm being exotic when the whole history is full of, but you know, she's, it was, I wanted her to be really a foundling. Once I learned how many ships foundered on the coast, just, you know, you just walk along the coast, there'd be a ghost ship or something from months ago. So I wanted her really self-invented. She has no name except the name her mistress gave her. And she's called that throughout the book until the point where she becomes a, a sort of an adult and she names herself and she names herself complete. <laughs> And, um, but that group, and Will and Scully, the indentured servants, they're kind of a, uh, the, the, the mistress and the master, they were not religious people. So they didn't join in the closest church community near them. Um, and they didn't like the fact that the church near them wouldn't baptize their infants either because they were part of the Protestants who felt that um, you should only be baptized when you have some sense, when you're 12, you know, and can say yes, not when you're a, a, a newborn. So they have these differences. But subsequently, when she is left alone and she has no children and no husband and only these servants around her, she becomes as vulnerable almost as they are. A woman alone, whether she has a state or not, is not really a legal person. 
None of them were legal. They were susceptible to take over from a man. Right. If you don't have a man to support or children that grow up and can defend and support, you're just out there. Somebody could come along and take you. You have no last name. You're not written down anywhere. You sort of don't exist. And under those circumstances, you really have to get yourself together fast and, you know, construct a self that's tough. Or you go under. Or you have a reason. And all of those people eventually do that. Their decisions about what to do under these circumstances vary, but they are certainly not the people at the end of the book that they were at the beginning. Bare feet become toughened. Yeah. You know, I mean that's a that's a powerful powerful image, and it's a young woman who loves the idea of shoes. Yeah, it's sort of me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shoe freak. But anyway. Um, when she's a little girl. Those are, oh, you're wearing beautiful Ta-da. shoes. <laughs> um, when she's a little girl, she likes to wear shoes. And her mother is fearful of that because, you know, high heels are worn by hookers, you know, not, <laughs> I mean, then. Uh, and anyway, she's fearful that she's becoming a sexual object on that place. And so that propels her to try to find another situation for her. And she really loves shoes. Even when she gets a new place, they make her some and so on. And she has tough hands because she's been picking things over. But her feet are soft. And Lena says, "You, you know, you can't. You, you don't have soles are not strong enough. You need to walk barefoot, so that they will toughen up." And she doesn't. But at the end, she's forced to and says to her. Mother, I wish I could tell you, you'll be happy to know that the soles of my feet are as hard as cypress. (laughs) So painful struggle, but she has found herself as an individual, and you make a, the author makes a very powerful plea for um, not being a dominator, not being dominated, but to be your own self, and like your other books, when you go back and then start reading the opening chapter again, you know, it becomes a full circle, and you see, once again, why the mother made a choice, Mm -hmm. why a mother made a choice in Beloved, Mm -hmm. and it reminded me also of Sophie's choice. Oh, yes. True. These are painful, painful decisions that people make, and certainly women, uh, you know, you can never really nail down the final and ultimate say, Holocaust story. There are millions of those. Um, and the same thing is true for slavery. You could never nail it and say, oh, this is the old. But the closer one gets, the richer um, the material becomes in terms of what people are capable of. The nature of love is, you know, what do you do when you love something bigger than yourself? where you erase the self, and the thing you love is the thing that is most precious. You can kill it out of love, as in beloved. Um, If you believe, as she did, that there is a life after death, and that death is joining the ancestors, uh, it's not blank, then it becomes 
a narrative of beyond. I wanted, she says, I wanted to take all of you with me to that other place. And that if that reincarnation or life after death is real, then the slaughter becomes a little bit different from just, I don't want you to feel any pain. She says an odd thing. I had to kill you so you wouldn't die. <laughs> Not necessarily so odd, I mean, really. Yeah, it's, really. Um, we, uh, in January, will inaugurate uh, an author as president. Indeed, a writer president. Yeah. <laughs> That's really, really sad. You know, I read Dreams from My Father. He was in his 30s, I think, when he wrote that book. Anyway, the scenes, dialogue, it's narrative. It's I mean, it's just amazing, I thought. You can really write. Somebody told me that I really ought to get the audio, that he read the book for, you know, books on tape or whatever. And they said, you ought to get that because those scenes when he's in Africa and so on, he does the voices in the accents of the people there. That's tough because, you know, when I read my books, I hate to do the dialogue because I, you know, I can't act. <laughs> and you know, really get it together. But he did that, so I was very impressed with that—that that reflection and that ability to see the world that way. So you know, and when I—I've never met him, but I have spoken to him a few times on the telephone. And the first time he called, it was early on, and he was interested in whether or not I might say something nice about his campaign. <laughs> it's a nice way of asking for an endorsement. Yeah. So I said, nah, I don't really do that. I don't make public things. But the, here's the point. Before he said that, he said, Professor Morrison, I have to tell you, before I tell you anything else, that Song of Solomon is one of my, and he said, complimentary things. So I always help you. I thought, he should be president, don't you think? <laughs> No, it's sort of a little flattering there. Uh, are you going to do anything for the inauguration? I don't think so. You think? I don't think so. Five million people. <laughs> I want to see it. But I don't really want to be in it. You know? Early, early on, when he was first running, uh, there were, you know, uh, some uh, black residents, you know, say, I remember being interviewed in a barbershop in New York, you know, where quote saying they didn't know what to make of him. He didn't come from a slave background into this country. Um, what do you think that issue was about? Uh, first of all, it was about his not having among his ancestors any slaves. It is also that he was mixed race. Um, so there was some wariness, particularly among with the generation the sort of civil rights generation, those people who had been beaten up and hosed and bitten and thrown in jail and suffered enormously in order to push, you know, civil rights and things along. And um, it's hard to give that up. You know, you work that hard. 
even though what you have worked for is him. <laughs> you know, that's what all the work was about. But if the person suddenly jumps up without your approval, <laughs> you have to check it out a little yeah. bit, you know. <laughs> A, a, a friend of mine uh, met him at, at an event and, and said that she played in a gamelan and, uh, you know, the sort of Indonesian orchestra. Yeah. And he began speaking to her in one of the dialects of Indonesian. You know, a multilingual president. I, know. I always wondered about that because when he says, uh, he talks about his mother making him get up in the morning in order to learn English. And I always said, what was he speaking before? And he said, well, Indonesian. I thought, that's extraordinary. I mean, among the languages you have to learn, that's really unusual. And here's somebody who has been around the world, not in an airplane, going to a hotel, and then speaking to someone, and then coming back, or having a meeting. This is somebody who was there among them as a child, you see, so that kind of intimacy and is rare among people who reach you know, that height. Your, um, your son Floyd said that you like chocolate. And uh, I was in Stockholm this summer, and I visited the Nobel Museum. Mm. And I don't, have you been there since they've put in their little cafe where all the laureates sign the underside of the cafe chairs? No. Well, you got to go back. But meanwhile, <laughs> I, I've, I brought something here. I, they, they sell these in the cafe shop at the, at the museum. And they're the little Nobel Prizes in chocolate. <laughs> So I don't know what that compares like to the original, but I got a couple of those if you want to take them with you. I used to have these, but I ate them. <laughs> so I, while we're talking about food, this is one of the reasons I come to California, and certainly one of the reasons I come to San Francisco. There's a woman here named Lorraine Battle. And I brought you one of her. Uh, she makes these tarts and cakes. She makes these tarts and cakes. It's a wonder. It's just an absolute wonder. So you don't have to chew on radio, but I just want you to know this is for you, honey. Well, thank you. <laughs> I saw that little bun you put back there. No, no, no. This is for you. Thank you. Now, gathered now behind us are Linda Tillery and her cultural heritage choir. Do you, do you have a question or something for him? Or? No, I just wanted to tell you that was one of the most exciting, moving experiences I've had on the coast with you this morning. Thank you. It really Thank you was. Much. Thank you. I loved it. Now, you said you had some CDs and things. Mm -hmm. Okay. And thanks, yes. <laughs> what, what were you, what were you, uh, uh, how, Ron, what is our time? We have four minutes, four minutes. So you, you heard what Linda was saying earlier, perhaps, about the history of slavery and the drums and the, exactly. and the so on. And I was, and I was struck by, um, you know, the way that, that slaves would absorb their culture and modify it. I mean, when you're talking about the creative ener energy and imagination yes. Yes. As of survival. Precisely, precisely. And when I was listening to them earlier, I thought again, um, the music, uh, whether it's gospel or blues or jazz or what, the instruments, uh, they never, they just never stopped. And it kept them and us alive and is a tradition that will do the same now. You know, and it's whatever its origin, you know, like the music, um, 
the nature of its origin and who sort of, quote, invented it. The beauty of it is that it's not limited to that culture. It just moves out, and anybody can have it and play it and love it. And if I didn't have a really, really bad hip, my dear, I would have jumped up with you. Now, and this, I don't mean this to be totally self-serving, but wouldn't you say the same about literature and about the book? Now, yes. I didn't always think that, but I thought since we are, when I started writing, I thought, you know, we're not telling those stories anymore, the way my grandparents talked to me or myself. So I thought, African Americans need literature now when they may not have needed it before because we had the songs and the music and the dance and the storytelling, the lore. But when that looked like it was, you know, around in the 70s, it was kind of like, what? Nobody was, it was all forward thinking, you know, let's move. And I thought, no, no, we need to supplement this with really first-rate literature. Well, thank you for what you've done. Toni Morrison. Very nice. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.